We're in the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. They are companion books in the Old Testament, and the sermon is simply entitled Deep River. So if you want to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5 and, and hold it there, we'll, we'll get there in just a moment. Both before and during the Civil War, the songs that we call spirituals, commonly heard among the African-American slaves, were songs about freedom. Following the war, uh, it, it, evidence arose that these songs became coded songs. Uh, in, in the writings of Frederick Douglass especially, the use of spirituals was a means of communicating plans to escape or mapping out how to find the Underground Railroad. Along with such songs as Wade in the Water, Steal Away, Down by the Riverside, the song Deep River is thought to be one of those code songs. Deep River, my home is over Jordan. Deep River, Lord, I want to cross over into campground. Phrases like Jordan River and the Promised Land represented freedom, most importantly spiritual freedom. That was always the heartbeat of the songs. But it also spoke of the deep desire to be free from the pain and suffering of the slavery of this world. While none of us can even begin to relate to the pain and heartbreak of slavery that once plagued this nation, we can under, understand the desire to be free from the suffering that is in this world. Some are still enslaved to a variety of masters. Human trafficking is a multi-billion dollar business annually. And some estimates are that more than 12 million people are enslaved in human trafficking today. For some, substance abuse becomes the master and the sole driving force in life. Others experience physical or emotional abuse at the whim of someone else and haven't found a way to get out of that. There's an anguish from the deep disappointment of unfulfilled goals and shattered dreams in our life. Many have and others will struggle to overcome life-threatening diseases, deep rivers that some of us are in. You'll look around this room this morning and you'll discover that most of us are dealing with some kind of pain. Uh, oh, we may look really good on the outside. We may wear our happy face into a place like this. You may look at other families around and say, they must have it all together. But I'm here to tell you, I don't know of anybody that has it 100% all together. The quest has been since the beginning of time, to find this sense of freedom. We're crying out for freedom. And the quest is nothing new. Especially when you come to the scriptures, you find story after story after story with the same desire. And that's what brings us to 2 Kings chapter 5. And the story focuses on a man by the name of Naaman, who was a Gentile. He's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. And he's a military commander. And his story begins in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the kings of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now at his home in Damascus, Naaman was known as a man of courageous valor led his troops into battle, and, and they came home with great victories. And consequently, when you're a victorious military leader, you often have the respect of, of those who are in charge, and you have the admiration of the people of your homeland. That describes Naaman pretty well. 
And did you also notice when we read through this that God was using him? God was giving him the victories. God was working through Naaman for a distinct purpose. Now, I find that really interesting because most of the time when we read through the Old Testament, we think that God only loves the Jewish people. That's not true. God loved all the peoples. God oftentimes used people who were from other areas or other regions or nations or cultures. God used Gentile people all the time, loved the Gentile people. You have to remember that the Old Testament is not a book of world history. It is the history of one specific family, the family of Abraham, because God is telling his story and how he's going to send the Savior into this world for all humanity. But there are little bits and pieces stuck in through these grand stories where God uses somebody among the Gentiles to teach profound truths. Now, Naaman's got it good. He is rich and famous, respected by the king, trusted by the troops, admired by the nation, and blessed by God. Now, it just doesn't get any better than that. And then we read it. Did you notice it when we went through the first time? There is that little, overwhelmingly powerful three-letter conjunction in the grammar of the text. But he had leprosy. But he had leprosy. An incurable and fatal disease that slowly consumed and destroyed the body, disfiguring the extremities sometimes beyond recognition. And it was contagious. That's why in Jewish culture, if you got leprosy, you were sent to a leper colony so that you could not share that or spread that within your family. And most of the time, people never came home from the leper colony. To be diagnosed with leprosy then would be the same as saying today, you have inoperable cancer, and the kind of cancer you have won't respond to treatments either. Or you have congestive heart failure, and you're not a candidate for a heart transplant. Or you have AIDS, and it's in advanced stages. There's nothing we can do. You, you, you see, no matter amount of fame or fortune can increase life expectancy. Naaman is desperate. For all of his fame and glory and accomplishments, he is desperate to be free from his disease. Some of you may be feeling desperate today about your life, your career, your marriage, or even your physical health. As a matter of fact, folks, we have a man in our congregation right now who is in desperate need of a kidney transplant to be healthy again, to find freedom from this disease. I know. I know him. I know he's trusting God for the right answer, but there may be somebody in this room this morning who wants to explore the possibility of sharing the gift of life by donating a kidney. I don't know, maybe God is leading you. Maybe you feel, this is, my, this is what I was sent here to do. That may be on your mind. If, if you think that might even be a possibility, you see me uh, after the service, or you see me sometime this week, and, uh, and I'll give you the information of how to contact this family in our, in our church here and, and, and see how God may be leading in that way. We're, we're all desperately trying to find something that brings healing to our lives. Let me, let me suggest we take a lesson from the story of Naaman. Make the most of every day. Don't wait for a more convenient time to live life to its fullest. Or, or don't say, well, when the kids leave home, or, or when I retire, or when I have more time, then I will live for God. No, 
Live every day for the Lord. Stay positive and be focused on that which really matters. Work on your relationships more than your notoriety because it is your relationship with God and your relationship with others that means more than anything else. Because you never know. You never know what day in your life that you're writing your story and suddenly the sentence changes and that three-letter devastating grammatical conjunction pops up in your life story. He had it all. But she was on top of the world. But, and when that happens in your life, where do you turn? Well, I'm sure you've guessed by this time, Naaman is hoping against hope to, be, to find someone, some way to be cured of this leprosy. Now, before the writer of the story of 2 Kings goes any farther with Naaman, he interjects something here that seems like he's going off on a rabbit trail. Verse 2 of chapter 5 says, Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And you think, what does this have to do with the story? Why would you put something like that in here? How does she count? Well, she counts for everything. I love how God works providentially to bring all the pieces together. Who could have known that it is a foreign servant girl in the service of Naaman's wife that changes his life forever? The the text goes on in verse 3. She said, the servant girl, the Israelite girl, said to her mistress, Oh, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And so Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said, And the king of Aram replied, by all means, go. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, Israel and and, uh, Syria were on good terms at this point in time. It was a peaceful time. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. The servant girl is the first to share the good news of God's prophet and the potential of his healing. Now, normally, normally a servant's suggestion would be dismissed. I mean, who's going to listen to a servant girl, especially one from a foreign country? Ah, but when your life is on the line, you'll explore any possibility. And this is no small journey. This is a journey of 135 miles into foreign territory. But you see, when your life is on the line, no trip is too great. You'll travel any distance. So he sets off with his entourage and a huge gift to purchase his healing. uh, This is a major gift. Do you realize that the gold and silver that he took along with him in today's currency would be the equivalent of $2.7 million? That doesn't count the 10 changes of clothing, clothing which was an exorbitant wardrobe in that day and time. I mean, he is leaving nothing unturned. You You see, when your life is on the line, you'll spend anything to find physical health. Naaman's mistake, like so many of us, was believing that anything can be bought if you've got enough money and power. John D. Rockefeller had more money than he could spend in a lifetime, but in the twilight years of his life, his health was so poor that he could only eat a dab of bland food every day. No amount of money, no amount of power could change that physical circumstance. You see, God's grace is never for sale. Naaman would learn that, but he started off with the wrong motive. 
In verse 7 of, the, of chapter 5, it says, As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. <laughs> now notice how things get mixed up real quick. The servant girl didn't say anything about, Go to the king, he can help you. The servant girl said, There's a prophet in Samaria. He may be able to heal you of your leprosy. The letter was sent to the king. Things get real twisted around real soon. And, and when you take the diplomacy out of the letter, it basically says, dear king, you better find a way to heal my servant Naaman. Sincerely, the king of Aram. And so the king is, un, you know, expectedly distraught. What, what, what can I do about this? How can I change this? He's in a panic. But what does it tell you about the king? What does it tell you about the culture of Israel when in the very city is one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament time? He is the successor to the great prophet Elijah. This is Elisha. King is oblivious to the fact that in his very midst is the representative of God to his nation. How often are we the same? How often do we try everything else first and then our last, in our last resort we turn to God? May I suggest that when you face challenges and tough times in your life, start with God. Make him the priority. Then try everything else last. Well, when Elisha heard the news of Naaman's visit and the king's angry response, he, he sent word to the palace. He said, you just have Naaman come to me. So <clears throat> the story goes on and Naaman gathers his party. And they, they go to uh, the, the prophet's house and, <clears throat> and Naaman being the... Um, the powerful man that he is, the influential man that he is, the celebrity that he is, doesn't even get down out of his chariot. He just parks outside the house and waits. <laughs> Elisha doesn't come out. I think God is working on Naaman's attitude here. First of all, there's a, there's a bit of condescension. There is an arrogant spirit. I mean, he's from Damascus. He's not about to get down out of his chariot to speak to a lowly prophet, and he's certainly not going to go up to the door and enter the house of some prophet in Israel. He'll just wait in the chariot until the prophet comes out, and we'll see what happens. Well, two can play at that game. Elisha didn't come out of the house. He sends his assistant out, and his assistant goes up to Naaman, and he says, here's what the prophet says to do. Go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and you'll be healed. And he turns and walks away. And, and, and you can almost see Naaman's jaw drop. That, that's it? Seven, seven dips in the Jordan, that's it? And so by this time he feels snubbed. To add insult to injury, the simplistic instructions seem humiliating for a man of such courage and valor and accomplishments. Had the prophet said, I tell you what, you bring me the hides of 20 wolves that you have killed with your bare hands, then we'll talk. Why? Naaman would have thought, now there is a deed worthy of a man of my capacity. But seven dips in a river? Did the prophet realize that the Jordan River was another 20 miles away? Did the prophet realize that it was a muddy river, that there were far better rivers back in Damascus in his home area? By this time, Naaman is so angry that he just kind of blows off the whole thing and he decides to go home. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Now, this whole scenario is about breaking down Naaman's pride and building up his faith until a sense of humility enters him. It's going to be hard for God to do his work in him. Now, there's nothing magical about the Jordan River. He was probably right. The rivers back home may have been better than the Jordan. 
And neither is this some kind of religious hocus-pocus kind of a ritual. This is simply about obedience to God, even when you don't understand the why. This is nothing hard to do. It doesn't make sense. After all, how many times had Naaman taken a bath and scrubbed hard against the skin of his body, hoping that somehow it would wash away the leprosy? And, and now, now the prophet just says, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River? We've come to believe that when God works, it has to be a crossing and parting of the Red Sea kind of moment in time. That God only works in the big and the majestic that, that you should hear Handel's Messiah playing in the background whenever God is working. Something majestic like that. But more often than not, God works in the simple, small ways. I wish I had kept track of all the times in, in my life I've heard somebody say, you know, I went to the doctor for this annoying cough that I had, and, and when he examined me, he discovered cancer, or he discovered that I had heart issues. Had it not been for that cough, I would never have known about a far more deadly disease. I've heard that kind of story over and over and over again. It's as if God gives us a little bit of a hint. Doesn't, he just works in these ways to pull all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I love how God uses ordinary people more often than the extraordinary are famous. In the New Testament, a nameless widow walks by the offering boxes at the temple, and Jesus is watching her, and she takes two small pennies, all that she owns, drops them in the offering box, and here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about that nameless widow. A nameless boy has a snack for a lunch when he's listening to Jesus teach, gives the master the lunch, and Jesus takes that small little snack of five loaves and two fish and multiplies it and feeds a group of 5,000 people. We're still talking about that nameless little boy. A nameless thief on the cross turns to Jesus and whispers his repentance and his faith in Jesus as the Lord, and in return receives the promise of paradise that very day. We're still talking about that nameless thief. You see, over and over and over, Jesus uses the, the insignificant in the eyes of this world, the ordinary in the eyes of this world to accomplish. So if you're here this morning and you think, well, I'm, I'm a nobody, I, I'm a, how could God use me? You may just be the exact person God is waiting to you, an ordinary person from, a, from an ordinary background, from a simple place, from a simple life, and God is going to take you, and you may be the key piece that fits into his puzzle to bring all of his will and his plan to fruition. I mean, even nature itself reminds us of, about how God uses the little things. What's your opinion of a goldfish? No, probably not much. Is it? I mean, uh, some people call, call them pets. Uh, for me, they're not much of a pet. You can't take them out of the water for very long and pet them. You can't, they don't do tricks. I mean, you know, there's not much to a goldfish from that stuff. They have a memory that lasts only seconds. So if you go back to the bowl an hour later, he's not going to remember that you were the one that was there an hour before or feeding him or anything else. But did you know? Did you know that a goldfish in the wild is one of the mosquitoes' biggest enemies? That a goldfish can consume over and over and over its weight in mosquito larva, so that which is laid on the water is consumed by the goldfish. I would, I'd build a pond in my backyard and fill it with goldfish next year if I thought it would keep down the mosquito population. Little things, insignificant things, kind of changes your opinion of a goldfish, doesn't it? 
I think God is always reminding us in the simple things of life and the simple things of nature, I can use anything and anyone at any time to accomplish my will. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Well, Naaman's, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleaned? You can't argue with such logic. I mean, <laughs> you, just, you just can't argue with that logic. You'd do something great. Why not do something simple? It might work. I think Naaman doesn't have a response to it, except to begrudgingly start for the Jordan River. And he gets there, and I think he steps, I think he steps into the water skeptically. I think he may be mumbling under his breath, this isn't going to do any good. And he goes down into the water once, twice, three times, comes up. There's no change. This isn't like whitening your teeth with every day you see a little bit of brighter teeth. He goes down three times, nothing. He goes down four, five, and six, Nothing. This is a waste of time. This doesn't matter. He goes down the seventh time, and suddenly something dramatic changes as he breaks the surface of the water coming up that seventh time. His skin is transformed. He is healed completely. And the Bible says it's not just the restored skin of a middle-aged man like he was. This is the skin of a child. It's like God says, I, I, I'm going to do you one better than you think. I'm going to give you the best, best skin you've ever had. Wow. What's even more important is it wasn't the outside that was the biggest transformation. It was what began to take place inside his heart. His character begins to change. His faith begins to grow and build. He begins to mature in his spirit. In, in verse 15 it says, Then Naaman and his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, He's down out of the chariot. Did you see that? Standing before the prophet now. And he says, I know that there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. It's not that God is confined to the borders of Israel. He's saying, I know there is no God except the God that you worship here. Please accept now a gift from your servant. Returning to the prophet's home would have been out of his way. He could have just gone ahead over the Jordan, gone straight up, and gone back to Damascus. But he returns to the prophet with a deep sense of gratitude and an even deeper faith. His angry heart has become a thankful heart. His prideful heart has now become a humble heart. His selfish heart has become a giving heart. He offered everything to the prophet that he had brought, and Elisha wisely refuses so he doesn't misunderstand that the grace of God is not for sale. God's miracles, God's providence can't be bought. His skeptical heart has become a believing heart. He says, now I know there is no God in all the world except your God. His pagan heart has become a worshipful heart. When Elisha refused the gift, he said, well, would you grant me this one pleasure? He said, would you let me take back as much dirt as one donkey can haul? Because I want to take back some of this ground as a reminder of what happened in my life here. I think he probably went home, and I think he probably built an altar where he could genuinely worship God. His fickle heart had become a devoted heart. He asks one other favor of the prophet. He said, would you pray that God will forgive me? 
And then he goes on to explain, he said, because when I go back home, the king is going to take me into his pagan temples, and I'm going to have to escort him, and he's going to be leaning on my arm, and when he gets into that pagan temple, he's going to bow down, and I'm going to have to bow a little bit because the king is on my arm. I am his servant, and I want God to forgive me for being in that place because I know there is no God in that temple. There is only the God that has healed me. I guess we could say this morning that Naaman had a deep river experience. It wasn't about the level of water in the Jordan. It was about learning the deep, life-changing truths that you and I need to learn as we come into the presence of God. Will you, will you remember these things that Naaman learned? He learned that there is no God in all the world except the God of Scripture. Will you learn that? That there are not a lot of gods out there. There is one God, the God of the Bible. Will you learn this, that God can use anything like a muddy river and anyone like a nameless servant to fulfill his purposes? Will you learn that God can use you and he can use me? Will you learn that obedience to God, even when it doesn't make sense, is always right? You and I don't have to understand the, the reason for the act of obedience. We just need to obey because I'm telling you, God always has our best interest at heart. Will you learn this, that spiritual health is more important than physical health it's better to be whole on the inside than to be well on the outside. And will you learn this? True freedom. True freedom is only found in the eternal love of God. You see, the disease of leprosy in the Scriptures is always a picture of the power of sin. That's why you're not healed of leprosy, you're cleansed of leprosy. There were two kinds of leprosy. One was a temporary kind, and everybody hoped and prayed that that was the kind they had, that they could someday return home to their family, be reunited to their family. But most often, it was the fatal kind of leprosy that began to eat away. And as it ate away at the extremities of the body, it numbed the body just as sin eats away at the soul and numbs our conscience as it does so. You see, a leper might live 10 to 20 years before the disease would take his life, and we can live a lifetime in the power of sin until our lives are, in our minds, damaged beyond repair. And just as Naaman reached a point where he could no longer dismiss the deadly disease, so the day will come when you will have to face your guilt without a Savior. But here's the good news. God can cleanse your soul as beautifully as he cleansed Naaman's skin. And in the process, he'll change your life in ways you've never dreamed possible, and you will find your greatest freedom in his love. After living alone for decades, author Cynthia Riggs received an unusual coded note in the mail. She assumed it was from Howard Atterbury because he would be the only one that would understand and use that kind of a code. She and Howard had worked together when she was 18 years old, and they developed a close but not a romantic friendship. But she hadn't heard from Howard for 63 years. But that note, that coded note, led to phone conversations, which led to a visit, which led one hour later to an engagement, which led to a wedding this year. Cynthia's 81, and Howard is 91. Do you know what the coded note said? I have never stopped loving you. Howard told CBS News, he said, love is a great place to spend the rest of your life. I couldn't agree more, folks. And that's why we're going through the Bible book by book, because some people think God's Word 
is some kind of a special coded book that's hard to understand. Howard's note was coded. The, the spirituals that the slaves sung, they were coded, but not God's Word. Woven through every book and every chapter, God's message has been the same since the beginning of time. I have never stopped loving you. That is God's message. His love is the greatest place to spend the rest of your life. Only in Him will you find your freedom today. It may be a deep river that you're in, but He's the one that can get you out and change your life forever.